Ladies and gentlemen, people of the internet, welcome back to yet another episode of Crypto Over Coffee. I hope you're doing well today. And if you're new here, every Saturday, we break down the latest news and the hottest topics in the world of technology and cryptocurrency over a cup of delicious coffee. Now, that being said, in today's episode, I'm talking about how EIP-1559 is going to affect altcoins and Ether's price. We're talking about Chainlink, Luna, our 404 Logic Not Found segment, and more. So make sure you stick around for all of those updates. Now, we normally kick off the show with Q&A, but I'm testing something new today, and I'm putting Q&A at the end of the show instead. So if you like this change or you don't like this change, let me know in the comments below. I'm trying to make the show better for everybody that's watching. And finally, if you would be so inclined, please do subscribe to the channel, hit the bell notification button, or follow the podcast on your platform of choice so you can get a heads up whenever I post new episodes of Crypto Over Coffee, which again is every single Saturday. Now, just a friendly reminder as well, please be aware of scammers that are in the comments posing as me and other crypto YouTubers. I do not have a WhatsApp. I will not ask you to contact me on WhatsApp to sell you something or any of that stuff. So if the comment does not have the name highlighted like you see here, it isn't me and you can go ahead and report them. So please be safe out there, folks. In partnership with the folks at Keystone, I also give away a Keystone tablet steel seed phrase backup in every episode by picking a random comment from the video. I'm also giving away one Keystone hardware wallet per month and that first winner of that Keystone hardware wallet is today. So just for transparency though, the products are only available in select regions. So if you win and you're from an unsupported one, I'll just send you Bitcoin instead. So the winner of last week's giveaway for the Keystone hardware wallet grand prize is here on the screen. So big congratulations. And of course, I will be in touch for you to claim your prize. All right, let's kick it off with a crypto market update and then dive into the effect of EIP-1559 on the markets for altcoins and Ether, etc. Well, for the second time in a row, we have seen green in the crypto markets going into the weekend, which is a site that was almost unimaginable for the last few months of price retraction. Bitcoin right now, I believe, is sitting at 43000 at the time of recording. And of course, it is flirting with that $45,000 mark. Ether has blasted above the psychological level of 3000 and altcoins are also off to the races. I'm personally shocked that the huge fear around the US infrastructure bill and the crypto provision in there is not pulling prices down. It just shows you how much buying pressure there is on the market right now. But most of all, the high from EIP 1559 seems to be playing a huge part of this hype right now in the market, having ripped Ether's price upwards by several hundred US dollars in just a short period of time back over 3000. I mean, that being said, let's just start, dive right in and start unpacking this EIP 1559 stuff a little bit more. People are really curious what the effect of EIP-1559 is going to have and will continue to have on altcoins that live in the Ethereum network and for the price of Ether itself. And we've already seen instances of the fact that it is really, really having a positive effect. But anyway, let's talk more about this. On August 5th, the Ethereum London hard fork brought a brand new fee market to the Ethereum network in EIP-1559. Effectively, EIP-1559 delivered a new multi-tier fee system to Ethereum, whereby the protocol defines a base transaction fee that increases and decreases based on the level of congestion in blocks of transactions on the network. This base fee provides a more predictable transaction fee calculation experience that was much needed in Ethereum, reducing the very common nightmare of overpaying gas fees by a huge margin. However, all the talk has not been about more predictable and well-optimized fees, which was the intent of the update, but 
instead about the narrative of deflationary ether. In other words, the supply of ether being reduced over time and pumping the price of ether to new all-time highs. How would this happen, you might ask? Well, by way of that base transaction fee being burnt or removed from supply when mined as a part of EIP-1559. And if that total amount of base fee ether that is burned outweighs the total issuance of ether through the block subsidy consistently, then you have deflationary ETH. In other words, the supply of ether reducing overall. Now, since we have a little bit of data already in terms of how much ether is being burned already, trackable on an explorer, which I can link below, it's quite fun to watch. We can actually postulate a bit as to what we can expect for this. So far, thousands of ether have been burned, at times reaching 1.3 to 1.5 to even 2.3 ether burned per block during higher volumes. And with the current block subsidy issuing two ether per block, this means that we are not yet at the point where deflation is occurring except in isolation in certain blocks. So we don't know for sure when or if that will definitively happen at the macro level where for an extended period of time ether is burned in more volume than it is issued. However, the rate of ether issuance is in fact significantly reduced because of this burning of ether per block that offsets the block subsidy issuance. This in and of itself is good and should warrant a ton of excitement, and it has, because since EIP 1559 took hold, the price of ether has bounced up well above 3000. With this bullishness continuing, even when people realize that deflationary ETH is really maybe not a reality, at least for the time being, I think that's a really good thing. I think that this will continue, this positivity, but there will be some volatility along the way. The real effect is that altcoin projects built on Ethereum will also see some of the benefits of this newfound economic phenomenon of reduced issuance of Ether. As Ether gains steam, altcoins tend to follow, and altcoin projects that are built with smart contracts will also benefit from the more predictable fees on Ethereum. The user experience around interacting with dApps will improve significantly as wallets adopt and adapt to EIP-1559, and more users means more utility and good things for altcoin projects. So people who are using Ethereum may not get relief from the high fees during congestion, and that was never the point of this update, but users will overpay fees far less often, and they will have more consistent experience across the different wallets with the protocol-based base fee. I would expect this upgrade to continue to be a huge bullish indicator for Ether and altcoins on Ethereum as long as the drama with miners can be avoided and we can stop the out-of-control expectations of deflationary Ether at the macro level. So let's just be happy with reduced issuance that makes EIP 1559's design viable in the first place and we'll see what happens with deflationary ETH in the future. Quite a few people on the channel have asked me my thoughts about Terra and of course this project has done quite well in the market lately with its token Luna, or I guess it's native cryptocurrency would be the better way to describe it. Terra and its Luna native cryptocurrency make up the blockchain protocol behind the UST stablecoin that is pegged to the US dollar. The Terra blockchain itself is built to support programmable money that can be used around the crypto ecosystem in the most simplest terms. In tandem, the Anchor Protocol, a savings account style yield protocol built on Terra and its UST foundations, offers the ability to earn yield on assets in the Terra ecosystem and beyond. But you're probably wondering exactly what's driving the insane price growth of several hundred percent that we've seen in Luna in the recent past. So here are my thoughts on that based on what I've seen in the market. And first of all, 
the USD stablecoin is extremely well built. It's designed to work cross-chain and performs extremely well at scale relative to competition. And it's garnered a ton of attention and adoption with very few exchange listings and quite frankly, very little directed marketing if you ask me. However, that is just the tip of the iceberg because as UST becomes more well adopted and used in more volume, it enforces a significant economic force on the Luna cryptocurrency by way of burning. Truth of the matter is, when new UST is issued, cryptocurrency including Luna is burned, which further constricts the supply and puts pressure on the price in an upward direction. In other words, Luna collateralizes asset issuance here. If you add that to the fervor around ancillary services in this ecosystem, like Mirror Protocol and Anchor Protocol, with new assets reliant on the stablecoin foundations of Terra, you have a recipe for insane price growth like we've seen so far. However, I want to note that after several hundred percent gains that we've talked about in you know, many times on other channels around the ecosystem and in major, major publications around crypto, please just exercise caution in FOMO buying this coin. It's a great project with a great product and a bright future, but you need to be cognizant of a correction in price because it's a real possibility. So consider me a big supporter of Terra. I am a holder of Luna, but my number one goal is to make sure folks find a good entry point. So please be calculated about how you approach this one in the markets, particularly when things are quite frothy. Now, in other news, there's some yet again, huge news that's not being given nearly enough attention from Chainlink. And this really centers around the announcement of a new interoperability protocol dubbed Cross-Chain Interoperability Protocol or CCIP. This protocol effectively relies on a committee of off-chain nodes that serve as aggregators and attesters between two disparate blockchain networks. And more specifically, this committee of off-chain nodes cryptographically signs and attests to information that's exchanged from one chain to another using threshold signatures, which are a form of collective signing mechanisms where multiple fault-tolerant entities can sign together in one signature. This multi-purpose protocol approach means that CCIP can be used to interoperate and bridge tokens and value between virtually any blockchain without native modifications to the origin or destination chain. Of course, all bridge-style interoperability protocols have a chance of vulnerability or exploit, so Chainlink has built in an anti-fraud monitoring protocol that will basically emergency shut off the connector between the two chains in the event of fraud or some other issue. This again is facilitated by a separate set of independent validators on the Chainlink network. Now, you know me and interoperability. This is going to be pretty big, and Chainlink has this insane product market fit right now. With Chainlink Keepers, the decentralized smart contract automation network that just went live on mainnet, now in tandem with this upcoming cross-chain interop protocol, it is bizarre to me that Chainlink, the most well-adopted Oracle provider in crypto, has not yet seen the excitement that I think it deserves in the broader ecosystem. They're building a suite of tools for smart contracts that is really going to be critical across the ecosystem. Their strategy has been so far really well executed with just genuine brilliance in my opinion and the pieces are in place to set a huge foundation for the future. So hats off to Chainlink for all the work they're doing. Now I'd also love to shout out a Cardano project that I've spoken to that's doing some cool stuff and I think could be really impactful when it launches. This project, Card Wallet, is a non-custodial wallet application that will also offer a liquidity engine for exchange and swap built in. What's special about this wallet though is that it is built from the ground up to support Cardano, all of Cardano's native assets, and other cryptocurrencies from adjacent networks like Ethereum. This is critical because DeFi relies on heavy, heavy cross-chain assets. 
assets that span not just one blockchain, but many. And having a wallet to manage multiple network assets is critical to that unified experience that we need. We don't need 50 fragmented wallets for every user. So I really like the way that Card Wallet is taking the approach similar to my favorite example of an amazing crypto wallet, Myar, in the Elrond ecosystem, and making a one-stop shop, non-custodial wallet that is beautifully designed and serves multiple assets across multiple chains with plenty of nice-to-have features built in, like exchange, delegation to stake pools, etc. This is much needed in Cardano, much needed. I will also mention that the CW token that will come in tandem with this app will be a huge part of the user experience of the wallet with benefits ranging from exchange fee waivers to governance and even yield. Now the IDO for that token launch will be taking place on August 16th and registration is taking place on August 9th on the Occam Razor Incubator, by the way, if you are interested in that, no pressure to buy anything. All right, next up is today's game of fact or FUD, where I take a piece of no good, very bad news and tell you whether it is fact or simply fear, uncertainty, and doubt. On Friday, news suddenly broke that the CEO of Binance US, Brian Brooks, had suddenly resigned after four months in charge, sending shockwaves through the crypto world. Coffee break. For context, Brian Brooks joined Binance US as CEO to much fanfare because he was the former chief legal officer at Coinbase, the former comptroller at the office of the Comptroller of Currency or USOCC. He has pedigree. The statement he made on Twitter seemed to indicate that there were some strategic misalignments between him and the rest of leadership at Binance US. I quote, Greetings, crypto community, letting you all know that I have resigned as CEO of Binance US. Despite differences over strategic direction, I wish my former colleagues much success, exciting new things to come. Now, I'm not normally one to promote the idea of being reactive to news like this or assuming things that we don't know, but in the context of Binance's recent regulatory issues, this is somewhat alarming. Whatever's going on behind the scenes at Binance across the board, globally, is something that the entire crypto community needs to keep an eye on. My initial read on this is that Brooks wanted to separate Binance US fully from its parent company and Binance to dissolve any regulatory tensions that may arise. And there was disagreement which led to his departure. This is pure speculation, mind you. I'm making complete assumptions, but I do think that this is factually a concerning event regardless of what the precipitating factors were and signals discontent at Binance in general from parent company down. And I would not go so far as to say that this is going to have ripple effects in the broader crypto space yet, so don't stress it too much, but we'll have to wait and see what other information comes out on this front in the future because there's gotta be more to this than meets the eye. All right, folks, I wanna give a shout out to the sponsor of Crypto Over Coffee, Ledin. Ledin is one of the best yield earning platforms for holders of Bitcoin and USDC. And of course, to take loans against your crypto as collateral if you should need it. That's often a strategy people use to not have to sell crypto. With Ledin, I'm stacking up interest on the crypto that I have on the sidelines from profit taking and it's ready to redeploy into the markets whenever I need it. So if you haven't already, please do check out Ledin using my link in the description below. And I thank you for that in advance and a big thank you to Ledin for sponsoring the show. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for 404 Logic Not Found. And for those of you who are as of yet uninitiated in this little firecracker of a segment, I highlight notable tech-related fails or otherwise stupid moves in the world that need to get some attention. And speaking of attention, if you want to help this episode of Crypto Over Coffee get some attention from the algorithm robots, please do hit that like button, 
get subscribed or follow the podcast because it tells the robots that you're enjoying what you're watching or listening to and others might also do the same. So a big thank you for that in advance and another coffee break. I finished half my coffee before the episode, folks. I'm sorry, I only had one cup. Now, if you're in the crypto space at all, it's virtually impossible that you haven't heard of the whole mess around the new US infrastructure bill that had a surreptitiously placed provision deep within its hundreds of pages that would do grave damage to the entire crypto ecosystem. Now, before I get into the complete and utter lack of logic in this whole thing, let me give you context and what this actually means first. And please note that I'm not a lawyer, so please don't take what I say as legal advice or evaluation. In the infrastructure bill, there was a provision that stated effectively that all brokers of cryptocurrency would be required to report to the IRS customer information for tax compliance. Think things like 1099 forms. At face value, you'd think, okay, they want to cut tax evaders out. But the real issue is the definition of what a broker is, is criminally broad as defined in this bill. I quote, a broker is responsible for regularly providing any service effectuating transfers of digital assets on behalf of another person, which doesn't explicitly include, exclude miners, software developers, stakers, validators, and any other individuals who have self-custody wallets who might transact in crypto. This leaves a huge amount of legal gray area and leeway for the powers that be to define however it suits them what the definition of a broker is, even retroactively in compliance enforcement scenarios, which is not only unethical, but seemingly deliberate in its vagueness to provide a big old trap for the entire cryptocurrency industry whereby it cannot survive. The net effect would be that crypto companies, developers, and even users would likely have no quarter in the United States or would at least face steep compliance requirements and innovation in this space would be all but stifled. Subsequently, an amendment that clarified the definition of a broker to exclude those such examples that I mentioned before was proposed by Senators Wyden, Lummis, and Toomey, which would not make this regulation perfect, but much better overall. However, in what again seems to be like a completely uninformed thing, a new amendment was proposed by way of Senators Warner, Portman, and Sinema, which makes the original bill arguably even worse by only excluding proof of work miners and some vague terminology about hardware wallet owners as the definition of broker, right? So minor exclusions that do no good. This new and far worse proposal is now being touted as the bipartisan compromise by the Biden administration and others, which is absolutely offensive to say the least. Now, what does this all mean? What this means is that if the original language or the Warner Portman Cinema Amendment were to pass into law, you could very well see stake pool operators, validators, smart contract developers, and other ancillary parties be defined as a broker for cryptocurrency, which they are factually not. If they are defined as brokers, they will have to comply with these reporting guidelines, which means, for example, a stake pool operator would have to report information about those transactors whose transactions their stake pool validates, which as you know, is not possible. I cannot tell who is transacting on the Cardano network, right? So I can't submit 1099 forms or report to the IRS. Same for smart contract devs whose code might trigger transactions. This would effectively mean that these things would not be viable in the US anymore, hence stifling innovation in the crypto space in this country. I mean, not to mention that this new amendment from Warner Portman Cinema that was supposed to fix the language means that proof of work is now treated differently than proof of stake, which is picking winners in technology and isn't ethical and makes no sense. To me, 
This seems to be a deliberate and slimy political act with a motive to create a regulatory vacuum in which cryptocurrency and its underlying technology cannot survive, at least not with, without dogged regulatory pressure that would make any innovation or development impossible. The way that this was subtly shoved into a massive piece of largely bipartisan legislation that had nothing to do with cryptocurrency shows that who proposed it knew it would not pass on its own. Every piece of legislation like this has failed before. So this was the only way that they were gonna get this done. Whoever it is that made this decision, it was a grave, grave mistake. It is the equivalent of banning the use of private servers to serve applications on the internet or route traffic on the web in 1999. Whether those attempting to legislate this actually understand what they're doing or not, stifling innovation in what is arguably among the top five innovative tech industries in the world right now is a one-way ticket for the United States to further set itself back against other advanced nations around the world in the realm of technology. And I say that as a proud, patriotic American myself, this is a mistake. The law is markedly illogical, ill-advised, and punitive towards a specific industry that needs regulatory clarity, not a regulatory bludgeoning. You can stop tax evasion without vaguely worded legislation like this. And as of now, the vote in the Senate was due today on Saturday, and I'm not sure whether by the time this episode airs if it will have been complete or not. If it passes the Senate, there's one more chance to have it amended in the House of Representatives before it goes to the desk for signing. But if it passes both chambers, there is a short window until 2023-ish to fight it before it takes effect. But that won't be easy. If you haven't already, please call your representatives in Senate and in the House to express your respectful disagreement with this policy. I cannot even express to you how ridiculous not only the proposed legislation itself is, but also how unethically the process has been conducted in order to get it passed. All I can say is that whether this passes or not, it will go down in history as one of the most egregious 404 logic not found examples of all time. All right, folks, let's shake off the negativity and move on today with some community Q&A. I always answer questions from folks who watch the show, and I've got some questions from last week's episode that I'm going to answer. And I want to remind you that if you have a question that you're interested in, it can be about anything in this space and you want it answered, please leave it in the comments down below on YouTube, or you can tweet me at Hishoshi as well if you're not watching on YouTube today. All right, let's dive into these questions and uh, let's see what we've got. All right, the first question of the day is from Do the Derek. Have you tried your hand at mining at all? This is an interesting question because I actually have. I, I, I did dabble in mining a long while ago. I've, I've since stopped doing it because, quite frankly, I don't have the space, I don't have the time, and I don't have the skills. Mining has gotten so much more complicated over the years. Um, some might disagree, but for me, it's too much. But originally, I was doing a little bit of Bitcoin mining. I was never all that successful with it. Um, by the time we moved into ASICs, it just it was hardware that I didn't, I couldn't afford at the time. I didn't want to buy anything. Um, but I did do a little bit of GPU-based mining on Ethereum, and I also did a, some pool mining uh, in general, where I was in mining pools and was earning a little bit. Overall, for me, it was just a way to experiment with the whole process and to be able to see how mining actually worked and to get to tinker with some of the you know, the the command line interfaces that let you set up mining in the first place. Um, so I did do it. I didn't ever earn a lot from it. And I never really got deeply into mining. 
But if you do want to try mining, there are tons of really cool resources out there. Uh, one particular person who I think has a lot of really interesting mining knowledge across not just the big protocols, but the small ones would be mine your biz. I can leave his information for Twitter and YouTube down below. Some really interesting stuff. And he's really open to answering questions on Twitter, for example. So if you have questions about mining, uh, feel free to reach out. There are plenty of other folks as well. Uh, if you have more specific questions, just hit me up on Twitter and I'll tag you to a couple of, of, of folks that have some interesting mining experience. Thank you for your question. All right, second question is from Raymond Chan. For ADA staking on your validator nodes, that would be my stake pool. I do have a stake pool. It is the H4SH stake pool on Cardano. So if you have ADA and you aren't on a pool yet, please do go ahead and delegate to my pool. Much appreciated in advance. Two questions here. What is the APR? And do I still hold my private keys to my ADA? Please advise. And by the way, noob questions are not noob questions. They are questions of people who are just getting started. Everybody starts somewhere. So don't worry about newbie questions or any of that. I will never shame you for having a newbie question ever. Okay, so the APR. The APR and like your annual yield on staking in general for the Cardano protocol is an interesting topic to say the least. So a lot of people get quite frustrated because when you initially delegate, there's a waiting period. So you're not gonna earn rewards for up to a few weeks actually. There's like a waiting period of, of several epochs or, or periods of time in the protocol before you start earning rewards. So there's that first thing. Second thing is that small pools like mine that will have a really good epoch where they mint a lot of blocks and so you get more rewards and then others where you aren't as lucky and you don't get as many blocks, you're gonna see a lot of fluctuation in rewards. You might see uh, a 2% APR uh, rate of return for one epoch, like a five day period. And then after that, the next one might be 17%. But overall, regardless of whether you have a big pool that is very consistent or a small pool that is very up and down, your average rewards are gonna be between five and 6%. That's the general rule of thumb in, Car in the world of Cardano. So over time, you will average out to that regardless of where you are. Of course, that the exception to that is if you're in a really, t like a pool that doesn't have any delegation or a pool that is way oversaturated. Those two things, oversaturation is 64 million ADA thereabouts. If you have a pool and you're delegating to it that's over that 64 million ADA, your rewards are gonna be lower. So if you're in an, uh, an a, a well-saturated pool but not oversaturated, or if you're in a small pool, you will generally get five to 6% rewards. And the answer to your questions about still holding your private keys, the answer is yes. The cool thing about the way that it's set up in Cardano is that you have basically what is a, a staking or delegation key, which is used to give basically permission, if you will, for a stake pool to claim your delegation. But in fact, it is not a spending key. So you're not ever letting go of your ADA whatsoever. You're not giving anyone else permission to spend your ADA. Your ADA is always in your custody and you keep control of your private key. So it's one of the brilliant things about how the proof of stake mechanism is built in Cardano. Actually, one of my favorite things about how it's built, uh, besides the interesting um, sort of luck and randomness that's built into it as well that lets small pools compete with the bigger guys. So anyways, hope those answer your questions. If you have other questions, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter again at Hashoshi4. And the last question is from ABCDE. It's the alphabet, folks. It's the alphabet. 
Hey, Hash, can you explain how the worldwide adoption of crypto will affect middlemen companies like Square and PayPal? Isn't the entire purpose of DeFi and crypto to remove the need for middlemen corporations and banks who collect fees and dictate what you can do with your money? Does that mean companies like Square are just speeding up their demise when they try and implement crypto or is there space for them I'm not seeing? I love this question. This is such an, a, an insightful question. So the answer is yes, there are a lot of middlemen and, and what crypto has been pitched as or DeFi has been pitched as is to remove all middlemen and replace them with smart contracts. That's been the idea. I think what really we're talking about is we're shifting the incentives for middlemen and we are moving middlemen out from the middle of the process and into a place where they can help the user experience. So a company like Square, for example, who is right now a, a payments facilitator, you can accept payments as a small business using a Square terminal, for example. Their shift towards crypto is going to be as an enabler for people to use crypto, where they're no longer gonna be the payment processor, but they're gonna build a stack of tools and a stack of user experience benefits and enabling technologies to let people use networks like Bitcoin, for example. PayPal, hard to say what they're gonna do with this. They're really in the market right now of, of like letting people use crypto to spend, and that's just a mechanism for them to, I think, earn transaction fees, candidly. Hard to say what their strategy is. I don't work at PayPal, and I don't know what PayPal is up to on that front. This is speculation. But what I think you're going to see is you're gonna see companies in these middlemen positions that are moving out of that space, moving into more of the space where they're gonna create technologies that let people use crypto more effectively helping people move from fiat to crypto and back. People creating a suite of tools that lets you set up your own lightning network channel in a matter of seconds without any technical expertise. Like there's gonna be all sorts of interesting things like that. So it's not gonna be like all the middlemen are crushed and eliminated forever. There will always be middlemen and processes around the world. That's just a fact. That's how this, this stuff works. Maybe over time, you'll see more and more of them sort of dissolve and move into different facets. But largely what you're going to see is you're going to see those middlemen moving out of that middleman, middleman position and then into more of an ancillary technology provider position, in my opinion. This may go completely differently, but based on what I'm seeing, I think companies like Square who are really thinking about this in the future and really thinking about how they can play in this space are using this as an excuse to innovate and move out of that position rather than worried about it basically ruining them. You know what I'm saying? So it'll be really interesting to see, but overall, fantastic question. Thank you for asking this. Let's revisit this again in a future video. I think this will be cool to look at maybe even a year from now. So thank you very much. Folks who are watching, please remember if you have a question, one that maybe came up in response to one of the questions from today that didn't get answered, please, please, please do leave it in the comments below or tweet me. I read as, as many comments and as many tweets as I possibly can. I answer as many as I can. Um, I'm one guy, so can't answer everything, but I try my very best. And I wanna thank you so much for watching this episode of Crypto Over Coffee and any other episode that you have listened to or watched. And if you do have some time, please do check out this video that I will link right here about iTrust Capital, an amazing uh, individual retirement account for cryptocurrency. It's a fantastic tool for you to uh, trade crypto, basically tax-free or at least in a tax advantage account. So really love it. It's for US investors. Fantastic service. Love it. Love it. And I've been using it a ton. Otherwise, folks, if you don't have time to stick around, no worries. I hope you and your family have an awesome week and weekend ahead. And until next time, cheers. Cheers.